Okay, so uh, we're just in a little bit of a, a transition Sunday from a series we've been looking at our core values, love, joy, and peace. So we've been looking at that for the last, uh, love, joy, and peace, love, <laughs> joy, peace, and depth. Depth is our code word for love. Um, so we want to love God deeply and we want to love each other well. And so we've been exploring that for the last little while. What we're going to go into from next week is a, a series just looking at the Sermon on the Mount. It's going to work our way exegetically through the Sermon on the Mount and, uh, and just what, look, what, you know, Jesus kind of came and bought this whole uh, new way of living. He presented it. This is what it looks like to truly flourish. And uh, he presented that in a number of parables and, uh, and sermons like the Sermon on the Mount. So we're going to work our way through that. So I'm really looking forward to it. And that's going to kick off next week. What I want to do today is just sort of round off our BVC series by looking at 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 to 24. And uh, what we're going to be looking at this morning is what is the will of God for your life? That little chestnut. So we're going to answer that this morning or part of that question. And uh, it's answered that question like what's God's will for my life? That's answered a number of times in Scripture from different angles. And so this is one of those scriptures. So we're going to look at 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 to 24. This is often headed up Christian conduct, and it's Paul's advice for what kind of people believers should be. And uh, can I encourage us to try and live this out as a Bay Vineyard Church? If we do this, we're doing really, really well. This is like one of the goals for us as as followers of Jesus. We're going to look at what, uh, what does it look like to really outwork that. So 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 to 24. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. And be patient with everyone. They're big words, eh? Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong. We're going to look at the Sermon on the Mount about this radical, anti-violent, peaceable way of Jesus where we don't retaliate when things get thrown at us. Hardcore. But always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. But test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. And may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. So this morning I just want to let this passage speak to us. And there's like about, I don't know, there's about 15 messages in this particular passage But I want to zoom in particularly uh, in the verses 16 to 18, which form this kind of one long sentence. And at the end of the sentence, it has these words, this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So if you want to know God's will for your life, here it is in this passage. And uh, we tend to miss it because it's not what we're expecting. Now, I know that some of you are like, ah, lame burgers, like, you know, you're talking about God's general will for, for us, not specific will for me. And so I'm sorry that it's, the sermon isn't about God's specific will for you in your life. But I tell you what, my suspicion is that there's so many times in Scripture that talk about God's general will, 
And I think that once we start applying God's general will, more often than not, He begins speaking to us a little bit more about a specific will for our life. Let's get the general stuff sorted first and then start wrestling with what does it look specifically look like for me to outwork the calling that Jesus has got on my life. And here's the great news for every single one of you is that God wants to use you. And it's in the church we've had this kind of thing where uh, if you're up front, then you're, then you're really nailing it. Then you're like a super Christian. We've elevated the stage and made it this kind of like super Christian zone. And then for the rest of us, plumbers and teachers and mothers and all that, so well, how does it look like to be a super Christian doing that? And actually, the kingdom of God's upside down. The kingdom of God is all about us learning to what it looks like to outwork the way of Jesus wherever he's got us. And he wants to shape and mold and teach us about what that looks like where he's placed us. And a big part of that is outworking the stuff that we've got going on here. So these verses have been called for a long time the standing orders of the church. And uh, we're not going to get new orders until I think we have uh, taken seriously the ones that we've already got. This, the church historically has called these the standing orders of the church. This is what the church is called to do. And to reinforce this in the Greek, uh, it's... I've got all these different tenses in the Greek that we don't have in the English. And the, the tense that is used in this particular command to rejoice always, to pray continually, and all things give thanks, is the Greek imperative tense. And the Greek imperative tense, well, let me, um, let me Bill Mounts, Mounts who's the um, most, author of the most used textbook on biblical Greek, explains it like this. There is no more forceful way in the Greek language to tell someone to do something than in the imperative tense, especially when the one giving the command sees himself as an authority figure. He expects those addressed to do exactly as he has ordered. So this is like, like Paul's getting in your grill right now, and he's like, this is the, the command I'm giving you. Like, this is what you've got to do if you're serious about following Jesus. So let's have a look. Have I got your attention yet? This is a big deal. And it's interesting because this taps into a whole lot of our values. But the first thing that you have to do is rejoice always. <laughs> Just love it. It's always in the Bible, this command to rejoice always. Like we talked about the Sabbath a number of, about a month ago. And it's like I was saying <laughs> that the Sabbath is like Jesus, God saying, you've got to eat the lollies or I'll kill you. Like it was punishable by death not to rest well in the Old Testament. This is what God's into, the serious business of joy. We're called to be people filled with joy. Rejoice always. And, uh, and so the first thing that I want to note is that it's not talking about an, an emotional feeling. Um, you can't demand or command a feeling just to kind of get stirred up. It's not the biblical equivalent of don't worry, be happy. Uh, studies have shown that su saying such a thing to a person in traumatic circumstances has an 84% chance of getting you a well-deserved slap. And that goes up to 99% if you're wearing a T-shirt that's got a smiley face on it. Now, those statistics are made up, but my point is that we're not talking about, you know, just saying to people that have gone through very difficult times, hey, just come on, put a, put a smile on your dial. And I've had a hard week. You know, I uh, buried one of my friends on Friday. I took his funeral, and it was like, uh, and so, like, you know, people get in your grill telling you to just have a great day, isn't it? <laughs> it's like, you know, bug off. I'm not, you know, I'm not in that space today. So there's something deeper going on here that Paul's tapping into. Uh, because the reality is that uh, there's a lot of 
pain in our lives. And sometimes there can be like good times and sometimes there can be hard times. And so if you get an A in your exam, you're like, yeah, I'm stoked, I'm happy. But if your pet goldfish Ernie dies and has to be flushed to a better place, then it's like, you know, then it's just, there's a sadness that's there. So the biblical picture of joy is not about what's happening externally. The biblical perspective of joy is that we continue to have a revelation of how loved we are and how forgiven we are. And in that revelation, there is a joy that fills our hearts that no external circumstance can change. That is the biblical basis for our joy. You are free. Like, honestly, the more that you journey with Jesus, the more he wants to give you this revelation of how free you are. The Greek word for salvation literally means a wide open space. So you are doing Christianity right. You are following Jesus well as if when every year that goes past, as you journey with Jesus, you feel more and more free. That's what it looks like to be winning following Jesus. He wants to give you a revelation even this morning that you are utterly free. You're freed from all the naughty things you've done. On the cross, he's taken that upon himself. You're free. And that's why we come to the table. We celebrate that. And you are loved by the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. He, he's bigger than Jacinda Ardern. He's bigger than the Queen. Like whoever these significant people that are in our lives, he is, is more incredible than that. And he looks at you, knows you by name, delights in you, rejoices over you with singing and loves you to pieces. One of Paul's great prayers is that we would know the love of God. And the journey of our lives is just to rest in that. And so that's where our joy comes from. I can bury a friend on Friday, but I can have an eternal joy because I'm loved and I'm free. This is the great hope of our Christian faith. Tim Keller says it like this. On the cross, Jesus experienced infinite restlessness. There is no rest for those who turn away from God. And on the cross, he experienced that. But when he died, he said, it is finished. What is finished? Everything needed for salvation, even for the most exacting conscience, for the most perfectionistic internal inner murmur. He has done it. It is finished. He lived the sort of life we should have lived perfectly. He died the sort of death we deserved perfectly so that when God looks at you, he sees Jesus. So what does it mean to be a Christian? It's not I'm going to try uh, and be good. It's I'm going to rest in the finished work of Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian, to just receive it and to rejoice that we are free today. So that means every slight, insult, wrong, injustice, pain, suffering, hurt we've endured needs to be balanced against God's love, forgiveness, and the free pardon he has given us. We, uh, you may not deserve the injustice you have suffered, but neither do you deserve his mercy, and he gives it still. We can go through all sorts of stuff in life, and, uh, and so we need to continue to uh, put it in context for what God has done for us. But more than that, to put it in context of the hope we have in Jesus. My friend died on Tuesday, and he was swept up into the furious love of God. When I was speaking at, the, at this, my mate's funeral on, uh, on Friday, and, and I said, you know, like my mate went through some, like, he had the, I think, one of the toughest cards dealt to him in life that 
anyone I know just about. Like he was born with mental disability that was undiagnosed for most of his life. So he was just under the barrier, really. And so he just struggled in life. Um, he just, uh, he had done time in prison. Also, like he just, and then he got dealt the cancer card, you know, and he's 39 and, and, and three children and he dies, you know. It's like just horrible cards. But you know what I was thinking is that when Jesus died himself, beautifully defeating death, the power of death, he goes in and conquers it. But on the day he died, he looked across at a criminal who had also had, we don't know his backstory, but inevitably he had had some tough cards dealt to him. I don't know what the criminal's family circumstances were, probably not great to get him to that point. He'd obviously had a bad day and got caught doing something very naughty and so he's going to get executed. And he looks to Jesus and says, remember me. And Jesus looks across at him and says, today you will be with me. And what word does he use? In paradise. So we have this hope that even through all of our rubbish circumstances, we can rejoice because we're loved and because we're free. And we can rejoice because this is not the end of the story. There's a day we're going to be in paradise with him. But the Christian church has got caught up on that paradise thing and forgotten that actually the biblical picture of hope in the Bible is a renewed heavens and earth. Heaven returning to earth, Revelation 21 and 22. 1 Corinthians 15, resurrected bodies of which Jesus is the first fruits. That's our ultimate hope. And so one day this world is like, uh, no mind can even imagine what it's going to be like. It's like there are moments where we're having dinner with our friends and it's like this is the way it's meant to be. This is like, we're, we're in the sweet spot right now. This feels like heaven on earth. And it's just a foretaste of what it's going to be like for eternity when the world is restored and renewed the way it was always meant to be. This is the hope that we have, and we can rejoice in that. Oh my gosh, you guys are asleep this morning. I don't know what's happened to my church. It's like, where have you gone? We're missing, that's what, I'm missing Joanne. <laughs> they text me this morning, oh, we've got a family thing on this morning. I'm like, no, my cheerleaders are not going to be at church. It's going to be quite soon. And I'm, anyway, whatever. Good on you guys. Like, you know, Gary. Um, Dumarist in his commentary on this verse adds, the basis of our joy is Jesus himself. For in him, I am able to distinguish between appearances and reality. Joy is tied to reality, not just appearances. We can have, go through all sorts of stuff, but Jesus is who we cling on to, and he is the source of our joy. All right, let's continue on. Oh, look at that, I had a quote, cool. All right, what's the next slide? Here we go, pray continually. Let's move on. Verse 17. So the command, for us, what's God's will for us in Christ Jesus is to, to rejoice always. To just, I've been talked about this, hates, to find that inner giggle and to hold on to it. Because we're just desperately loved and we're free. And you can just reach and just celebrate that. The second command is to pray without ceasing. And the only way to have this joy is to have the right perspective. And the way that we have the right perspective is we stay connected to God. It's very easy to get overwhelmed with your circumstances when you unplug from Jesus. And you've heard me preach about this the last two Sundays. Like we aren't called to believe in Jesus, we're called to follow him. And I'm shocked at how many people want to try and just believe in Jesus and have no interior life with him from Monday to Saturday. We need to, to change that. 
I want this church to be a church that follows Jesus into those places of silence and solitude to commune with our Heavenly Father. That's what it means to follow Jesus. So we pray without ceasing. Now, last Sunday I was talking about the challenge of having some 20-minute slots in your week where you just sit with Jesus. And I gave you all the tools that I can think of that can help you in that space. This is also talking about prayer, but a different style of prayer where we just pray without ceasing, where we're in communion with God throughout the day. So this isn't your 20-minute quiet time. This is as you go through your day, you have an engagement with Jesus and you pray without ceasing. Colossians 4 verse 2, devote yourselves to prayer. And now I wanted to clarify something. Pray without ceasing doesn't mean mumbling prayers all day, Okay. Uh, this is a good way to get locked up. But if you do want some space on the public transport, uh, go for it. You know, there's nothing like a mumbling guy to give a bit of a one or two metre kind of zone of space that you may want. So feel free to do that if it's going to help you. A little rocking back and forth sometimes uh, helps to paint the picture. Um, but what we're not talking about, this, I love this quote by J.B. Lightfoot. It's not in the moving of the lips, but in the elevation of the heart to God that the essence of prayer consists. So this is what we're talking about here. Throughout the day, we're just chatting with Jesus. Uh, um, as I mentioned last week, when I'm in the car, I often put the Pray As You Go app on, which you guys heard a sample of last week. So, you know, we go all very Jesuit and monkish and all that sort of stuff, which I love. Uh, but then sometimes if uh, it's just me in the car, I'll, this is a bit weird, but I'll pretend Jesus is in the passenger seat. And it's just I'll chat to Jesus. And it's, and it's lovely because he's my friend. He's my friend. He said that. I have not, I'm no longer calling you servants. I'm calling you my friends. Now, he's holy and transcendent and the creator of the universe. And we hold that intention with the reality. He's also my friend who sits in my car. And we talk together as we drive. And you can just be communing with Jesus all day long. And it just helps you have that perspective. And it helps you cling on to that joy. It is in prayer, it is better to have a heart without words than words without a heart, John Bunyan. And so it's not about, again, uh, I'm all over and I think we desperately need those times where it's just us and Jesus. It's dedicated time because if me and Jen didn't hang out, if we only ever hung out in a group or in the middle of all of our busyness, there's something broken in our marriage. In any friendship, there's QT, quality time. And Jesus is the ultimate person that deserves quality time because the benefits to our soul are unbelievable when we cultivate an interior life with Jesus that's strong. But outside of those moments, we can also just acknowledge his presence and be in his presence every day. Uh, there was a um, famous monk called Brother Lawrence who uh, became a monk and he desperately wanted to get close to God, which is why you become a monk. And he was given the duties in the kitchen. And it's like, how on earth can I engage with God with all of this noise and you know, people yelling at us all the time, that sort of thing. And, uh, and he got some wonderful spiritual direction by some older monks. And he eventually wrote a book called Practicing the Presence of God. We said even in the hustle and bustle of the kitchen or your workplace or your crazy home or the rest of it, you can practice the presence of God. You can, you can just find him in that place and you can uh, reach for him there. And so I want to encourage us, because again, the command for us to walk in the will of, of God is that we'd rejoice always and we'd pray continually. 
And thirdly, uh, the invitation is to give thanks and everything to give thanks. And this flows from the other two. We're for finding joy in the deeper things of our lives and fostering an ongoing and abiding connection with God. Then we are going to see Him at work for good in our lives. So we can just look around and, uh, and be grateful for what He's doing. Romans 8.28, which is a very familiar passage, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. God takes this really seriously. There are 138 passages in Scripture that deal with being thankful. And uh, it's, been, it's really interesting. There's some research that's actually taken place where uh, they've, they've noted that uh, this, this researcher called Hans Seeley discovered that the two attributes, there's two attributes that affect our quality of life more than any others. The single most destructive is revenge. So like, you know, you, we've all probably experienced betrayal or broken trust or um, broken relationships and real pain. And we've all been there imagining what we'd like to say to that person or at worst do to them. Uh, you know, we've all gone to those dark places. And, and holding on to that is one of the most destructive things we can do. And Jesus invites us to follow him into that radical path of forgiveness not just forgiveness, but we'll look at the Sermon on the Mount, but love for those who have hurt us and, and, and wounded us. And it's this radical response. But the beauty is it frees us from holding the toxicity of wanting revenge. It's interesting, in the West, we don't like talking about the judgment of God that often. But in the two-thirds world where there's been unbelievable pain and, and you know, if you some of the stuff that's gone down in, in two-thirds world countries is unbelievably unjust. Murders and rapes and destructions of villages and human trafficking and just, we, it's hard for us to get our heads around it. But in those sort of context, the judgment of God is a great thing because we're saying God is my vindicator. I'm not going to try and seek retribution because I'm going to leave that to God. One day we will stand before him and he will be a righteous, and I pray, merciful judge. But he, is a, he will bring judgment. And it's like, hallelujah, because for all of those horrific people that have destroyed lives, I can leave that up to God, right? So we can let go of that need for revenge. It's just incredibly destructive. But the single most beneficial in terms of this research, in terms of reducing stress, is gratitude, simple thankfulness. And uh, it gets so cheesy, but you can tweet it if you want. We want to have an attitude of gratitude if we follow Jesus. We want to put our positive pants on and look at all the blessings of God around us. And man, it's been a bit of a stressful week for us as a family because I've been away and, uh, you know, short weeks and uh, emotionally very tired. Probably haven't been the greatest husband or, um, you know, dad in the last couple of days because it's been sort of exhausted from the last funeral and all the rest of it. And it's super easy just to get your negative pants on and just be like, you know, and to just dwell in, in the little pity party of feeling overwhelmed and, you know, and all the re- and tired and all the rest of it. And I was like, oh no, I can't believe I have to preach this this Sunday. Lord, no. Oh no, you know, not this one, please. Um, you know, and as uh, we keep on saying, we're all hypocrites in transition, thankfully, uh, because uh, I struggle with this, you know. I like the melancholic in me loves just wallowing in 
my struggles, you know. Uh, and I look around and I've got this lovely house with a lovely family and just kids that fill my heart with joy when they're not driving me up the wall. And, uh, you know, and a wonderful wife and, um, and this church which continues to blow me away with its beauty and goodness and just what God's done in the short amount of time is just incredible. Can't get to Sunday quick enough. And uh, love what God's doing and all that sort of stuff. But it's like, it's so easy just to look at all the, the stuff that's tough in our lives. And yet, uh, this research is like, if you want to reduce your stress, and I'm all over that, it's just, just you're like, man, I'm so thankful for that. And I'm so thankful for that. Um, Corrie Ten Boom uh, has got this, um, tells a story about how she learned to be thankful in all things. Uh, her and her sister Betsy were moved, they were... Um, uh, in World War II, arrested by the Nazis, and um, they were moved to the worst concentration camp called Ravensbrück. Uh, not that there are any good <laughs> concentration camps, but they found these conditions even worse than before, and the huts were really crowded, and they were infested with fleas. And Betsy read this very passage in 1 Thessalonians, and she made them get on their knees, rejoice, pray, and give thanks for everything. And Corrie refused when Betsy wanted them to thank God for the fleas. She's like, I can't do it. That's my limit. But eventually she gave in to Betsy's pleading, and they thanked God even for the fleas that bit them and kept them awake at night. After a while, they noticed that the guards had given them a lot more freedom than they were used to. They were able to hold Bible studies and prayer meetings without interference. And uh, this made their time at the camp a lot less dreadful than it could have been and allowed them to minister and to bless others. And later, Corrie found out that the reason why the guards wouldn't enter their hut was because of the fleas. It's just incredible. So it, this is the one that really kicks my butt. Matthew Henry, who, who um, he liked to eat pies uh, by the looks of things, uh, and he, um, a legendary Bible commentator, um, and he was robbed and all of his money stolen at a certain point in his life. And so uh, because it was in the 17th century, they didn't have credit cards or anything like that. And so uh, he just had his cash with him and it was all robbed and everything was taken. And he wrote in his diary the next day after the incident this, First, let me be thankful because I was never robbed before. Secondly, because although they took my wallet, they did not take my life. Thirdly, because although they took my all, it was not much. <laughs> and fourth, because it was I who was robbed, not I who was, not I who robbed. Now, I think a lot of us could be thankful for the first two grounds at a stretch that we'd never been robbed before, and although they didn't, you know, at least they didn't die. Um, but how many of us would use such an ugly event to celebrate our own clear conscience and innocence? Just an incredible perspective of just gratitude for a situation that's just really, really tough. Uh, he's got such a healthy perspective on life to be able to reflect like that the day after such an event. And it really does expose, I think, our Western entitlement mindset that we just expect it all to be Disneyland all the time. And when it's not, we throw our lollies and get angry at God and it's just, you know, what's going on? I don't deserve this. And, uh, and 1 Thessalonians doesn't say that we're grateful but just because, you know, just because things are going well. It's be thankful in all, in all things to give thanks, to be able to look for those blessings in the midst of it. 
And so often there are things that we overlook. Uh, a place to lay our heads, food on the table, family and friends. And sadly, often until uh, those things are gone, we, uh, f- we don't see them for the blessing that they are. And again, being at a funeral is interesting. You know, you go to a funeral and all of a sudden people are just reflecting on the blessing of a person and the way that they've enriched someone's life. And it, all of a sudden it's like this perspective, but that's because they've gone. And the invitation of God through Paul in this passage is that we would look around and just be so grateful for all that God has got us and to, to really just carry that in our hearts. Martin Luther once commented that if God were more stingy, we might be more thankful for the little that he has given us. <laughs> he says, the greater God's gifts and works, the less they seem to be regarded. And, uh, and it's, I wonder how true that is for us where we just can sometimes just think, oh man, we're... Uh, you know, just God's given us so much to be grateful for. Now, I know that uh, some of us are in a really tough season right now. And so I don't want us to um, be a culture where you can't be real and honest with God about where you're at. But we can actually simultaneously be brutally honest with God and we can be filled with joy prayerfully connected to him and grateful for all that we have. They're not mutually exclusive positions. We can actually be honest with God. The Psalms are David's diary to God and they are brutally honest, sometimes embarrassingly so, in terms of his inner processing with God that become these songs of the Israelite nation. So I want to encourage us to be honest with God and as much as we can with each other. We aren't going to have put on masks here and pretend everything's sweet when we're struggling. Of course not. But we're also going to continue to encourage one another to have a godly perspective on our circumstances. That we would be a people who are filled with joy because in spite of all the challenges that we're going through, His love for you has not changed. And you are freed from the power of sin and the hold of death because of what he's done on the cross. And Powerball is nothing compared to the hope we have in Jesus. It's nothing compared to the hope we have in him. We're going to be with him in paradise and one day the world's going to be restored and renewed the way it was always meant to be. That is the Christian hope and we must cling on to it. So let's encourage one another. I, just, I find this challenging but liberating. Because this is God's will for us. This is what he wants you to do. God's will for your life is that you would be a person who rejoices always, prays continually, and all things gives thanks. That's what he wants you to be. And so often we focus on the Christian faith around what you do. Most of the Bible focuses on who we are and who we're becoming. And this is the work of sanctification on our lives. The Bible says he wants to transform us from glory to glory. So when you decide to follow Jesus, it's the beginning of a journey. It's not the end of one. It's just the start line. And it gets more beautiful and more rich the more that we yield ourselves to the way of Jesus and we flourish when we choose to follow his way. And so as a church, we're rejecting stress as much as we can and we're rejecting busyness as much as we can and overwork as much as we can and distraction as much as we can so that we can be beautifully present to our God and to the relationships around us and flourish in our inner being. Allow the fruit of the Spirit to cultivate within us. 
So, if you remember back to the whole passage, it ended with this beautiful statement. Faithful is he who calls you and he will bring it to pass. He's faithful. You know, we go up and down all the time and he's always faithful. He's always there. He's always waiting. And you can walk away from him. He will always be there waiting for you. The guy I buried on, uh, on Friday, he would often get really annoyed at me. <laughs> and he would, I've mentioned this a few Sundays ago, he did doughies outside my office one day because he was really annoyed and just then rocked off and, uh, you know, and drop all sorts of F-bombs in my face. And, you know, just kind of get, he just, sometimes he just freaked out. And, uh, and I, I just remember just saying to him, man, you can run anytime, I'm always here for you. Like, this is your choice. Like, I'm gutted because I want to hang out. But I will, and that's what God says to us. Like, you can choose to really trust him and yield your whole life to him. Or like most of us, we can give him bits that we're happy to give him. It doesn't matter, he's faithful. He'll always be there, wooing, inviting us to trust in him more and more and more. And he will bring it to pass. It's very similar to this passage, Philippians 1 verse 6. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. I'm going to come into land this morning, and we're, we're coming into land early, which is good. It's probably the worship leader went on a bit quick this morning, but that's all right. Um, I've said this a few times. I'm going to keep on coming back to this. The reason I'm convinced that this is true is because of the life of my grandfather. He passed away at 98, and, uh, and he'd been faithful in his walk with the Lord. In World War II, he became a Christian, knelt down in the olive fields of Greece, gave his life to the Lord, and, uh, and he went through great suffering in his life. His um, wife committed suicide from postnatal depression. Um, he, uh, he lost, uh, his, he said one time about, of the war, he said, I had breakfast with my best friend and I had to bury him at morning tea. Um, so he, you know, it wasn't like just sweet books for my grandfather and just sweet, you know. Uh, he wasn't in full-time ministry, which I love. <laughs> because he's my hero, so I'm like, you know, I think it's good to find heroes that aren't just preachers and pastors, spiritual heroes, so I think it's actually really important we have those sort of heroes, so he worked as an accountant for Magnum Motors, a car sales yard in Wellington, and everyone knew him as a man of integrity, that's a good reputation to have, he wrote down every single person that wasn't a Christian in the back of a diary, and prayed for them every day, and one by one over 60 years, he just crossed those names off one by one as they came to the Lord, and a whole family line changed on his side of the family, um, but the reason that he's my hero is because I used to wrestle with the question, is sanctification, is this work of being transformed from glory to glory just a pipe dream, or is it true? And my grandfather was the testament to me that it's true. That when you hang out with Jesus for 60 years, you do get transformed from glory to glory to the point where you carry the presence of God. And no one incarnates this passage more than my grandfather. He was always rejoicing. He was the first to giggle about anything. He was filled with the joy of the Lord. He constantly was communing with God in prayer. He loved the word of God. And he was just, in all circumstances, he just gave thanks. He just lifted your spirits all the time. And he became such a godly, holy man that I would feel convicted, encouraged, rebuked, stirred up, challenged, and he'd be talking about his garden. I'm like, how do you do that? Like, he just carried the presence of God. So I'm like, here's the thing. I'm not going to give up on God doing that work in me. 
As Rachel Hunter, the famous New Zealand prophet, once said, it won't happen overnight, but it will happen. But it will happen. We've got to stick on there. We've got to hang in there. If you've fallen off the wagon, we get back on the wagon with Jesus. You've stopped reading your Bible, start reading your Bible. You stopped hanging out with Jesus, you choose Jesus again because He does a good work. It's worth it. Everything else that you spend your time with, it doesn't give you what Jesus can do you because He is the life. He's the only one that can give us true life. And so I want to encourage us to cling on to Jesus because you can become a person who is rejoicing always, who is praying continually, and who's giving thanks in all circumstances. We're all hypocrites in transition. We all have this to varying degrees. Most of us are pretty lacking, probably if we're honest. But it's okay because he wants to give it to us. He's faithful. So here's our challenge this week. This is us coming into land. Um, here's your homework. And maybe you want to do that now. Find at least one thing to be joyful about in your life and just let it make you smile. Everyone's got the phones out. Good. Take your photo. Find at least one small thing to talk to God about like the ever-present friend he is and find one thing to be grateful for and if you can, tell somebody. That's your homework. Okay? Isn't that good? Because, and that's the will of God <laughs> for your life. <laughs> that we cultivate that sort of posture in our own hearts.